Hi, I'm Sean. I've always had a passion for personal growth and a curiosity for life's profound questions. I created this show as a platform dedicated to inspiring change through thoughtful and insightful conversation. There's a lot happening in the world today. Some of it clear, some of it confusing. My goal with these conversations is to leave you feeling better and more informed about the state of our world in these challenging times. I'd like to invite you to think outside the lines. Hello, beautiful people, and thank you so much for joining me today. My guest today is a motivational speaker, author, and expert on the topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. In his professional career, he's been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker, and for the past 11 years, a cancer warrior, which has resulted in the amputation of his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. He's the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. He's also been featured in Authority, Thrive Global, and Human Capital Leadership magazines, along with being quoted and featured in the new book, Audaciousness, Your Journey to Living a Bold and Authentic Life by Maribel Ortega and Helen Strong. I promise this conversation will leave you inspired and determined to get out and live your life to the fullest. I invite you to think outside the lines with Terry Tucker. Well, Terry Tucker, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you as well. I think it's going to be a really fun and inspiring conversation for our listeners today. I'd love if you could start with just a little bit about your journey and talk about what's motivating you to make the world a better place. Yeah, I mean, I go back a lot of times to my parents. I have two brothers, no sisters. All my brothers and I played college athletics and one brother that was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, the National Basketball Association. So our family growing up was all about sports. And and my my parents, I think, really showed us the value of family, loving each other, of caring for each other, of supporting each other. And and my parents used to do what I call divide and conquer parenting, where, you know, I would have a game on a particular night at a particular time at this location and my brother would have a practice at the exact same time somewhere else. And so it was always, okay, I'll go here with Terry. You go there with Larry. And that was what our family was. About. So I, I graduated from college. I'm the first person in my family to graduate. And I moved home to find a job. I'm, I'm all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now how little I knew about business just because I had a degree. <laughs> Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents, excuse me, for the next three and a, excuse me, for the next three and a half years to help my mother care for my father and my grandmother who were both dying of different forms of cancer. You know, fast forward 30 years, I am now battling a rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma that has seen my foot amputated in 2018, my leg amputated in 2020. And I'm currently being treated for tumors that I still have in my lungs. And I know that sounds like a very dark journey, but I'll, I'll end with this. I think I've learned two really important things when it comes to cancer. I think number one, you don't really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity in your life. And secondly, 
I think cancer has made me a better human being. Well, you have clearly overcome and been through some some rather significant challenges in your life. I think it sounds like more than most, but it seems like you've also lived more than most. And I'd love if you could share a bit about this wide array of life experience. You know, you touched upon it, but kind of expand on some of it because I feel like a lot of what you've been through has really shaped your perspective to your point and specifically as it pertains to motivation and personal development. Yeah, I mean, if you if you sort of look at my resume, it's, it looks like a Super Bowl but went off in the room. You know, it, it's it's really all over the place. As I said, I got out of college and went to work for Wendy's, and then I switched to hospital administration. And then I made a major pivot in my life, and I became a police officer. And part of what I did in my law enforcement career was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After law enforcement, I started a school security consulting business, Coach Girls High School Basketball, became an author in 2020, and started a motivational speaking business right around the time COVID hit. And so if you look at that, you're like, boy, you're kind of all over the place. There, there really was, there is, there's sort of a backstory. And the backstory is this. My, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty with, with his own gun. It was a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad, who was an infant at the time, always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's shot. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to college, you're going to major in business, you're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. That's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose was. So as I mentioned, when I graduated from college, he was dying of cancer. So I had a pretty dilemma. I could have said, you know, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail. I know you're dying, but hey, you know, too bad for you. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do and go into business. So understanding the backstory of my resume makes a little bit more sense now. I kind of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited until my father passed away and, and I followed my own dreams. And and I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer and can tell you i took a whole lot more tylenol in the police academy than my younger counterpart i think that story probably resonates with a lot of people who were following in someone else's footsteps or they wanted to do right by whether it's their parents you know other people in their family and i think that at some point in life and it sounds like this is what happened to you like your calling is your calling right and the things that you're meant to do still find their way to you and i love people who are able to share those kind of stories because i think it's cool now you've written an incredibly inspiring book entitled sustainable excellence and in it, you discuss 10 principles for leading an extraordinary life. And I'd love if you could discuss some of these principles and the profound impact that they've made on your journey. Sure. Yeah. Each, each principle is a chapter. And it's always fun for me as an author when somebody reaches out, because there's always one principle in the 10 that, that resonates with a particular person I'm talking with. And the principles are not in a particular order. Number one isn't necessarily any more important than number seven, but there, there's one that, I mean, I wrote all 10 of them, but there's even one that I think resonates with me. And I'm, I don't know if I should say it. I, I mean, it resonates with me because I, I'm not real proud that I did this several times throughout my life. And, and here's the, here's the principle. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And Sean, I know I've done that. I know I've been like, oh, I'd like to do this. Oh, wait a minute. You know, am I smart enough to do this? Do I have enough information to do this? 
what will people say about me if I fail at this particular endeavor? And that's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. Whenever I speak to, especially young people, I always tell them, you know, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be those things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So that's, that's probably the one that really resonates with me the most. There, there are a couple other ones, being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And I think that's, that's something I learned when I was playing sports. You know, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old. And I played all the way up until I graduated from college when I was 21. And, and, and being part of a team, and for me, it was team sports. I think it can be whatever team you're on, whether it's your family, your colleagues, you're in a band, whatever it is that you are, you're, you're, you're part of a team somewhere. And what I learned is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than you. Because you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And I honestly believe that, that we all have this, I don't know, feeling or, or virtue or something inside of us that wants to be part of something that's bigger than us because it helps us to grow. It helps us to get better. It helps us to define who we really are. So, so that's another one. One of the things I, I put in there, and I see this in a lot of young people, is the importance of failure and failing often, especially when you're young. For some reason, there seems to be this theory or something that the successful people never fail. And I think the road to success is with failure. If you would talk to these people, but you know, you see a great ball player or a great artist or a great doctor or lawyer or something like that. Think of, man, that person, they, they, they've got it all. They, they've never had anything bad happen to them, to them in their life. And I'll almost guarantee that if you're like, you drill down into that, you will find some kind of despair, some kind of poverty, some kind of, 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 of something that occurred to them or happened to them that was horrible, that was terrible. And they use that as fuel to propel them into something better, to something greater in their lives. So that's one. And I guess I'll, I'll end with this one, the importance of listening. And, you know, whenever I say that, you know, people are like, well, of course, we all listen, but we don't. And this is something I learned as, as a hostage negotiator. When I first got on the, the negotiating, negotiation team, they gave us this formula. And the formula was 7, 38, 55. And it had to do with how we communicate with each other. And 7% of it is the words that we use. 38% of it is the tone of voice that we use with those words. And then 55% of it is our body language and facial expressions. But as hostage negotiators, we were not with the person we were negotiating. We could be blocks away on the phone or behind a locked door. So I could say something and I didn't see the person kind of roll their eyes like, oh, what an idiot. I can't believe he said that. And so we didn't have that 50 in terms of how we communicate. So we had to figure things out, certainly by what people were saying, but also what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. And the importance of listening is, the, is listening to understand versus listening to respond. 
you know, if you and I are talking and I'm like, all right, hurry up, Sean, say what you're going to say, because I want to give my two cents here. Well, that's listening to respond versus, okay, Sean, I hear what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you, but help me to understand where you're coming from and why you feel this way. That's listening to understand. And I just don't think we do very a very good job of that, certainly in this country, but I think all around the world at this point in time. Yeah. And I mean, look, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. As it pertains to listening specifically, though, I wonder, and I find myself thinking about this often because I, I agree with you. I don't think we're listening enough. There's times when you are engaged in a conversation with someone. And I think to your point, right, you're like, you're just waiting to say your next thing for them to stop so you can start speaking. But there's another layer to it, modern day where we're staring at screens all day and we're distracted by those things. And I think that's part of the reason we're not listening. And I wonder how much technology plays a factor into that. I think it plays a, a huge factor. I, you know, being in law enforcement these days is not much of a desirable job, but every now and then somebody will reach out to me and say, you know, I'd like to go into that line of work. What do you recommend? And, and the first thing I always tell them is put down your devices and yeah. go out on the street and talk to the homeless guy and go up to the penthouse and talk to that person. Because if you can talk to people, if you are curious, that was a, that's another chapter in the book, the importance of being curious and being a lifelong learner. If you're curious, and that was something we were taught as negotiators, to use your, your curious voice. Well, how did that happen? What got us to that point? Being a curious individual will make you a good police officer. If you can't communicate it, in any other way other than texting somebody or sending someone an email, you're going to be miserable in that job because so much of it is interaction with people, many times people that are in crisis. And, and the other thing that you, I always had to remember as a police officer that, you know, I may pull you over for running a stop sign or speeding or something like that. And for you, it's the scariest thing that happened to you all year. To me, it's the third traffic stop of the night. <laughs> and, and, and it is. And so you, you kind of have to keep that in mind. I mean, obviously, you know, your safety is, is, is paramount. But, you know, if, if you know you're not going to be attacked or whatever of that has all kind of gone by the wayside, trying to have an interaction like, yes, I might be a police officer, but I am a human being just like you are. So, you know, we, we, can, we can work on working this out, but I'm not here, you know, but that's what all they, they see the uniform, they see the badge, they see the gun and stuff. You know, you have authority yeah. over me. Yeah, to a point, but knowing when to exercise that authority and when to say, look, these are just two human beings. You know, somebody may be speeding and it's like, you know, I tipped out my mother, you know, had a heart attack and, and we're, you know, she's in the ER and I'm going to see it. Well, could I write you a ticket? Sure. But is that a good idea? No, let's connect as human beings. I don't, I'm, there's no quota or anything. I don't need to write tickets, but slow down, get there safely and take care of your mother. So I love what you said about curiosity, first and foremost, because that's the primary reason I, I do this podcast is because I'm a curious person and I want to speak to people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. That's the kind of thing that really lights me up. But I loved also what you said about when you're pulled over by a, a law enforcement officer, that's probably the scariest thing that's happened to you all year. But mm -hmm. it's just part of your day-to-day -day routine when you're in that role. And I think that if we can look at more things in life from that perspective, right? It's, it's about having that perspective. And I love what you said about the humanity aspect too, because I think sometimes we forget, I think it happens on both sides of that equation, right? I'm sure there's people in law enforcement that you know forget that there's a human on the other side as well. And I think that 
if you can pause and just reflect on the fact that, okay, we're just two human beings about to have this interaction. It might not be the most pleasant thing that's ever happened, but at the end of the day, let's find the, the, the common ground and the humanity in it. And I, I love that perspective. Yeah. And, and that's, I think as you get older and, and you, you are a police officer for a number of years, you realize that. I mean, you, like I said, you know, your, your safety is, is paramount. You know, I want to go home to my family at the end of the ship. Yep. But, but outside of that, you know, everybody thinks, well, you, you want to take people to jail. I know. I, I really don't want to take you to jail because I got to do a lot of paperwork. That's okay. How can we, how can we resolve this? I mean, how can we, we can, we can meet, as you say, as, as two human beings and resolve this so I don't have to keep coming back here and dealing with it. Because, you know, you come back two or three times, it's like, well, eventually somebody's going to go to jail because I've given you enough opportunities and things like that. And I always used to say, I think most people think about this, we wouldn't need nearly as many, you know, police officers, sheriffs, deputies, those kind of things, if there weren't drug, alcohol, and mental illness issues in this country. Yeah. And, and so much of what we did as, as law enforcement were people that were either having a mental crisis or that were high or that were intoxicated and, and caused some kind of a, of a ruckus. You know, you're, you're having a fight or you're, you know, you're, you're beating up your spouse or you're driving drunk or whatever it is. And if we didn't have all that, you know, if we had more personal responsibility, like, you know, I drunk too, too much, I'm either going to call an Uber or I'm going to crash on your floor or something like that. Oh no, I, I can drive home. It's only a few blocks. Sorry, if I get you, I, I, I couldn't stand drunk drivers. I mean, I thought I've been too many accidents where people have died yeah. for the actions of a drunk driver. And nine times out of 10, it's not the, the drunk driver that dies. You know, they're so relaxed and everything that they usually survive the accident. It's something that's an individual. So I, I think personal responsibility is, is a big part of that. But I think you're absolutely right. Connecting as a human being with another human being, regardless of what, you know, whether it's a boss subordinate, whether it's your your husband or your wife or you and your kids or whatever it is, you know, connecting on that personal level, that humanity level is something that I think a lot of times we don't even think about. And you said something interesting. I don't even know if you realize what you said, but you, you, you alluded to the notion of authority. And I think that authority is often something that is more of a perception than sometimes a reality. You know, I've led teams of people before and First and foremost, I strive to be a leader, not a manager, because I think that people that want to be a manager have this air about them that says, I have authority over you, right? And you and I, you have to listen to me. And I feel like any good leader knows and understands that like that's the complete opposite way to get someone to you know, believe in you or listen to you. You have to come at it from a place of humanity, I've always thought. And so I appreciate that like, you know, even in those type of situations, like, yes, there's an air of authority, but beyond that, I think there's... It's it's about the human connection, and I and I really appreciate your perspective on that. It, it is, and, and you know, there's that old saying: you you lead people, you manage projects. Yep. And and I think that's that's incredibly important. And how do you lead? You know, you want to be. You know, I went to a military college in South Carolina, and we were taught about being servant leaders. You know, I don't, as the boss, I I don't know everything, but I have people who do, and I need to rely on those people, and I need to be humble, and and I need to to be involved in their lives and care about them as human beings. That's what a leader does. A manager is, look, here's a task that's got to get done. You know, Bob, if you got to stay late, too bad. You know, I'm going home. It's five o'clock. That's a manager. Yeah. And, and, and I built, I think there's a huge difference between somebody who manages and somebody who leads. Cause like I said, a leader, you know, th- that's a, that's a human quality that that's, 
That's what you do with people. You manage projects. And I think too many people try to manage people and that's where they get in trouble. Yeah, 1000%. I could do a whole podcast episode on that topic. I'm sure. <laughs> you also talked a little bit about fear and I want to kind of blend that topic into an additional aspect of your content, which is the four truths that you talk about to help others lead their uncommon and extraordinary life. And I want to dive into each one a bit because I think that we could learn a lot from each one. But number one is particularly fascinating to me because, again, you talked a moment ago about fear. And I think that there's a lot of fear in the world today for various reasons. That leads to a lot of anxiety that people experience. And I feel like number one is particularly relevant in that aspect. And so I'd love if you could maybe walk us through these. Sure. So the, the four truths are, are just things that I've, I've kind of codified over, over certainly the last 11 years. And they're, they're just one sentence. I have them on a post-it note here in my office. So I see them multiple times during the day and they constantly get reinforced in my brain. And so I'll, I'll give all four of, it, four of them to you and then we can go into them individually if you'd like to do that. The first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one I, I look at kind of more as a, a legacy type of truth, and it's this. What you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one I think is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I, and I kind of look at these four truths. I call them sort of the, the bedrock of my soul. I think they're just a good place to start to try to build a quality life up. Yeah. And I do find all of them to be incredibly profound. I think, I guess, going through them individually and starting with number one, how do you do that? How do you control your mind? Because I feel like we're all kind of I don't want to say victims because I don't like that word. Talk about that one because it's fascinating. Sure. So, I mean, you can't you can't tell this from my voice, but I'm I'm six foot eight inches tall, and I, I went to college at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, on a basketball scholarship. Despite having three knee surgeries in high school, and I remember when I went back playing basketball after those knee surgeries, I remember my my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind, things like you're probably a step slower since your operations. Coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you to play for their college or university. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I am still playing at an elite level and coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their schools. I realized I had to change the narrative that my brain was putting into my thoughts. And I, I remember reading a study that the Cleveland Clinic did some, some years ago that said that on any given day, we have approximately 60 to 70,000 thoughts that pass through our mind, most of which we don't even pay attention to. And 95% of those thoughts are the same ones from the day before, which means we have approximately 3,500 new thoughts each day. And in addition, our minds operate at a speed of about 1,000 words a minute. Now, I'm old enough that I took typing in high school. You got an A if you could type 40 words a minute. So a thousand words a minute is like, oh my gosh, you know, given all those thoughts, your mind can still only hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative thought? And, and again, the problem with most of us is we think with our fears and our insecurities instead of using our minds. And I'll, I'll give you this story. 
from the Citadel, one year when I was down there, we had a president who was a man by the name of Admiral uh, James Stockdale. He'd been a naval aviator during the Vietnam War, and he was a prisoner of war. He got shot down uh, in 1965, and he was a prisoner of war for almost eight years. Ended up winning the Medal of Honor for everything that he did in terms of you know, prisoner resistance and communication and behavior within the prisoner of war camp. And, and I didn't spend a lot of time around Admiral Stockdale, but I, I remember being at an event with him one time and somebody asked him, who were the people that survived that brutality, that abuse, that torture? And he said, let me tell you who didn't survive. He said, it wasn't the big, strong, tough guys who thought that they could handle any amount of abuse or torture. And this was interesting as well. He said, the other group that didn't survive were the optimists. He said, these were the people that thought they would be let go or rescued by Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter. And Thanksgiving and Christmas, Easter would come and go and they weren't rescued. And he said, those people would die of a broken heart. He said, the people who did survive were those who understood what they could control, which according to Stockdale, were their, their thoughts and their breathing. Everything else was up to the discretion of the enemy. When, when we get food, when we get exercise, when we're beaten, everything else was at their discretion. People who understood what they could control and control it. Stockdale once said that you must never confuse fate, that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of our current reality, whatever those facts might be. And I think that's where we get in trouble. We try to control things that are outside of our control. And that trying to do that causes anxiety for us, and just leads sort of snowballs. It just builds and builds and builds. Understand what you can control and control that and let the rest of the stuff go by the wayside. So how do you do that? How do you surrender in that way? Because I think that's where people get stuck, right? They don't know what the first step in beyond is. Yeah, I think part of it is, so I guess I can answer that by going to number two. So we can kill two birds with one stone. There you go. So in, embrace the pain and the difficulty we all experience in life and use it to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. So our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to the brain, the status quo, the way things are right now, it's comfortable and familiar and should just be left alone. The problem with that is the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to improve is to step outside those comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. When I was a high school, girls high school basketball player, I used to constantly, my players, constantly remind my players that they needed to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. That doesn't have to be cancer pain, or even any kind of an illness. It could be as simple as you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you know the flight you're leaving on to go on vacation gets canceled, or someone else at work gets the promotion that you believe you deserve. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, is optional. Suffering depends on what you do with that pain. Do you use it, make you a stronger and more determined individual, or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want others to feel sorry for you. There's a quote from Ernest Hemingway that goes, life breaks everyone. And afterwards, many are stronger at the broken places. 
So to make yourself more resilient, to make yourself have that control over your mind, let me offer this suggestion. I try to do this every single day of my life. Do at least one thing every day that makes you uncomfortable, that scares you, that makes you nervous, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big, but if you do those small things every day, you know, I need to clean the house. I don't want to clean the house, clean the house. I want to get up this morning. I'm running late for work. I don't want to make my bed, make your bed. I got to study for this test. I don't really want to study for it. Study for the test. Do it. It's not hard. Just do things every day that you don't want to do. I don't, I don't want to get off the couch. I'm having a great time eating my, my Fritos and drinking my, my Pepsi. You know what? I don't want to go to the gym. Get off the couch and go to the gym. Do things that make you uncomfortable because if you do, you will have the resiliency that when the big disasters in life hit us and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us. We get let go from our job. We find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness. You'll be so much more resilient to handle those things when they present themselves. Resilience is a word I'm particularly interested in, especially as of late. And I feel like it's particularly applicable in your case. <laughs> Can you talk a little more about that concept and what it means to you personally and how it's motivated you in your journey? Yeah. I mean, it's, I am still being treated for tumors I have in my lungs. I go every three weeks to the hospital for an entire week for treatment. And then I have two weeks off. And I've, I've been on this three-week schedule for the last two and a half years. And I don't want anybody out there to think that, you know, I mean, you and I were looking at each other before we, you know, we started this recording. There's no S on my chest. I do not have a cape and fly around with magical powers. I have bad days. I feel sorry for myself. I cry. I get down. And when I do, I remember a couple stories that I heard. Number one was with uh, a professor at Johns Hopkins University back in the 1950s who did an experiment with rats. And he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And on average, those rats treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as they were getting ready to stink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. My God. Now think about that. First time, 15 minutes. It's not like, oh, hey, my business is going to fail or something. No, I'm going to die. My life is going to be over. And the second time, 60 hours, which said to me two things. The number one, number one the importance of hope in our lives. You know, maybe not today, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year. But if you keep doing the things you know you're supposed to do to get you to that goal, eventually, more than likely, you are going to get there. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. I mean, we give up, we quit, we, we just break down long before our body does. Because our mind is like, hey, this is hard. You should stop now. You should give up. You should quit. Our bodies can handle so much more than they ever than you ever thought they could. And, and that kind of dovetails with the second story. My, my wife worked with a young man who is a former Navy SEAL. And he's kind enough on my off weeks of treatment to call me and just check up on me. And a lot of times we talk about what the SEALs refer to as their 40%, which says that if you're at the end of your rope, if you can't go on, you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have another 60% left in reserve 
to give to yourself. So that, you know, I always just say, remember the next time you're like, I just can't do this anymore. You're only at 40% of your maximum. You have so much more left to give to yourself if you would just fight and push through that. The problem is if you don't, if you haven't calloused your brain, if you haven't been doing those difficult things every day, your brain's going to take over and say, nah, nah, don't, don't do that. It's hard. It's difficult. Just rest, relax, take it easy. Don't do that. And you will listen to that because you haven't calloused your brain enough to get to a point where, no, I need to push through this and get on the other side of that pain. Because once I do, man, I didn't realize I had all this left in me. I feel like you've touched upon a lot of this, but I'm going to ask again and kind of give you another opportunity because I feel like there's probably someone listening right now who's struggling to find that motivation that you speak of or maintain a positive mindset in the face of their adversity. And I'm curious, what what would you say to that person? I guess I would say you're so much more than you think you are. And, and especially if it's a, you know, if it's an illness or something like that, I've seen so many people just, you know, they're afraid, they're scared. They, they turn their life over to a doctor. They turn, Here, you, you just tell me what to do. And, and I've seen it. I've seen people that, that I've been in treatment with. They're up. Doctor says, I only have six months left to live. And pretty much bang, right on that six month day, they're dead. Yeah. And, and what I always say is, you know, doctors are like Vegas. They play the odds. They, they know the odds. Oh, you got this kind of disease. It's in this stage. So you know what? You probably have six months, eight months, year, five years, whatever it ends up being. But what the doctors don't know are your heart, your mind, and your soul. The doctors don't know that next, next fall, your grandson's getting married. And by God, you're going to be there for that thing. Those are the things that, that we don't focus enough on. I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like to have my foot amputated in 2018 and my leg amputated in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And I told her, it has not been easy. I'm, I'm six foot eight inches tall. So learning to walk again, you know, falling is not an option from this height. It's going to hurt, you know? Yeah. So, so falling is not an option. But what I told her was, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my heart, touch my mind, touch my soul. That's who I am, Sean. That's who you are. That's who everybody who's listening to us is. And we spend so much time working on this body. You know, I got to go to the gym and I got to get enough rest and I got to eat right. And I got to reduce stress. And I got to do all this. We spent all this time working on the body. And I'm not telling you not to do that. You absolutely should do that. But what I am suggesting is maybe spend a little more time each day working on your heart, working on your mind, working on your soul. This body, we all know it's going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to go away. But your heart, your mind, and your soul, those things are eternal. I just don't think we spend enough time working on them. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about the importance of things like self-care and self-compassion as it pertains to this journey. Because I think that, you know, it's, I think it's an area that's often neglected by a lot of folks because they are focusing on the things that you just mentioned, right? The, the physical aspect and the taking care of and et cetera. But the self-care aspect seems like it's equally important. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, and, and some people are like, well, how do you do that? How do, how do you, you know, how when you're in the, in the dumps and, and you feel lousy and, and you're, you just don't think you can go on, how do you, how do, you do that? And, and, and I get in those positions. I mean, like I said, I'm a human being. I, I have those bad days. But when I do that, I've found that I am looking internally. It's like, oh, woe is me. You know, this is terrible. I, you know, I don't have a leg. I don't, all these things are going. So you, you start to kind of, you know, drink your own Kool-Aid, so to speak. And, and I find a really simple way, a really easy way to get out of the, the dumps, to, to kind of get out of those doldrums 
is to, instead of focus on you, turn that outwardly. Who can I go make a difference in? Who can I go help? Like I said, I'm at the hospital every three weeks. So there, there's plenty of people where you can just, hey, how's it going today? Hey, you want to have a cup of coffee? You just want to sit around and talk. And now all of a sudden, my focus is not on me and how bad my life is and how things you know suck in my life. But now my focus is on another human being. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, making that human connection. And when we do that, I think if COVID taught us anything, it's how much we need each other. You know, being isolated, being, you know, away from other people, alcoholism rates went up, drug abuse rates went up, domestic violence rates went up because we couldn't be together. We, you know, or we were together with people that were toxic to us. Now, if all of a sudden you can, instead of thinking how bad things are with you, you are helping another human being, your focus has shifted from you. And, and at least for me, and, and this is what I really try to do when I get in those places, I got to go find somebody that I can go help. And in the hospital, there's always people that are worse off. That's a good point. In your book, you talk about the idea of refusing to settle. And I'm curious how you think people can identify and break through some of these like self-imposed limitations that we put on ourselves to achieve our full potential. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think, I think so many people do settle. I think so many people, you know, they get to a point in their life. I think it was Viktor Frankl, Frankl, the concentration, concentration camp survivor from World War II. And he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, excellent book that I would absolutely recommend to people. He talks about that we have a moral responsibility to find our purpose in life and live it. And I think so many people sort of start down the road towards that purpose. And then they either butt up against an impediment or they get, get comfortable. I mean, going back to, you know, that second truth, you know, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And so they get comfortable and it's like, yeah, I've got a family now and I got a decent job. I mean, it's, it's easy. It's, it's not something I've got to spend a lot of energy on. And so they, they, they quit, they give up. I'm not going to pursue my dreams. I'm not going to pursue what, what I feel my purpose is. And, and, and let me say something about purpose. I think we talk about purpose in the singular, that it is one thing that you are supposed to do in life. And maybe it is for somebody. But for me, I found that that word is plural, that there have been purposes in my life. When I was young, I felt it was sports. I was, I was in athletics, you know, played college basketball. I felt that was my purpose. And then I always felt my my purpose was to be in law enforcement. Now, I did other things before that, but I never lost the, the sight of that that was my purpose. You, you, know, you are the person you're looking to become. You may not be that person yet, but eventually if you keep that purpose in your mind, you keep that focus on what you feel you're supposed to do, I think a lot of times you'll get there. But I think people quit. They just give up. They're like, oh, this is comfortable and I'm good. And so that was a purpose. And now as I'm coming to the end of my life, I think my purpose is switched again to putting as much goodness, positivity, motivation, love back into the world as I possibly can. So, you know, don't feel, and we all like to think that our purpose would align with our job or our occupation. And if it ever does, great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy for you. But don't feel that it has. To. I mean, your job can be something over here. It's what you do to pay the bills. But your purpose is to to write or to be a podcast host or be an activist or to paint or whatever it is that you feel in your heart that you're supposed to do, 
Well, so I think people just, they, it's easy to quit. It's easy to give up. It's easy to get to that comfortable state. And I think most people do that. There's, I'll end with this story. There's a, there's an entrepreneur by the name of Ed Myler, interesting guy. He talks about the four types of people in the world. He said, the first group are the unmotivated. And he said, that's the vast majority of people you will come across. The second group he talks about are the motivated. It's kind of low level, you know, carrot and stick. If I do this, I will get that. It's a life simply based on motivation. But for a lot of people, it's effective and it's a, it's a fine way to live. And then the third group that he talks about are the inspirational. The word inspiration coming from two words in the spirit. If you're an inspirational per person, you move people with your energy. And then the last group he talks about are the aspirational people, where people aspire to be like you. And when I give talks, a lot of times I'll throw that story out and be like, well, you know, how many people think they're, they're in the unmotivated category? Nobody raises their Every, and it's hilarious. <laughs> That's the vast majority of people in the world, but nobody thinks they are. Yeah. You know, nobody thinks I'm unmotivated. Everybody thinks they're at least motivated. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could all be aspirational people where people, where our lives motivated people, they wanted to be like us. And I think that the difference between that is just don't quit. Just don't give up. Just know where your purpose is in life and go after it. Even if it takes you 50 years, I always tell the Colonel Sanders story who started Kentucky Fried Chicken. He started that franchise. Now, I don't know if that was his purpose. I'm going to assume it was. <laughs> when he was in the 60s. Yeah. You know, after he retired, he started Kentucky Fried Chicken. And there are countless examples of people that started things late in life. So don't think like if you're in your 30s and I haven't found my purpose yet. Well, I'm just going to stay where I am because it's comfortable. No, don't, don't ever give up on your purpose in life. I've thought a lot about purpose in my life, obviously, right? I think we all have. And I love what you said about the idea that like, it doesn't have to be something that you do for your job. I think that's where a lot of people kind of get defeated or feel deflated is because they're like, oh, I'm not working in the, the industry that I feel I'm meant to or the purpose or whatever. And it's like, no, you can fill your purpose in so many other ways in your life. And I feel like if more people realize that, people would be a little bit happier. I think so. I, I, I really do. I, I remember the story, you know, most of us either grew up with or have seen or heard about Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers on his television show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, educated so many children, including me on public television. And I remember hearing the story that after Fred Rogers died in 2003, his family was going through his effects and they found his wallet. And inside his wallet was a scrap piece of paper on which Mr. Rogers had written four simple words, life is for service. And if you think about that in your life, you know, Sean, I, I think we, we think that somehow we're born empty, you know, and that once we grow up and, you know, we, we go to school and, and we get out of school and we kind of get into life, get into the world, that we feel that our job is to fill up that emptiness. You know, I got to get a great education, I got a great job, I got to make a lot of money, I got to drive a nice car, live in a nice house, have a great family. All these things, when we fill ourselves up, are going to make us happy are going to make us fulfilled. And what I found is it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full with everything we need to be successful inside of us. We just need to find that, pull it out, and use it to our benefit. So instead of thinking that, you know, the more stuff I have, the happier I'm going to be, which I've found, and mostly everybody I know, 
that never works. Yeah. You, there's always more to get, more to have, and you think that's going to make you happier, and you never do. But if you spend your life in service, if you spend your life instead of getting stuff, but pour yourself out, pour your, your gifts, your qualities out, certainly for the betterment of yourself, but also for the betterment of your family, of your friends, your community, of your country, think how much better we would be if it wasn't what can I get, but what can I give? I feel like this, this whole conversation has been rather positive, but I like to end on a positive note. And so my final question that I ask everyone is what has you hopeful? People. People have me hopeful. I, I, I mean, we, I know we see on the news all the time, and, you know, on social media about, you know, we're, we're, we're divided, we're, we're fractured, we're all this. And, and I think in a lot of cases, so, excuse me, we are. But I think those are the fringe. I, I think the vast majority of people, certainly in the United States, are, are kind, decent, caring, loving human beings who just want the best for themselves, their family, and their communities. And I think that was, that's what I found in law enforcement. You know, I found that, you know, kind of like in business, the 80-20 rule apply. You know, 80% 80 of your business comes from 20% of your customers. Well, in law enforcement, 80% of the crime was committed by 20% of the knuckleheads. So, you know, you kind of knew who these people were. But the vast majority of people, and that's why I became a police officer, to lock people up, not to beat people up, but I became a police officer to serve, to serve the people that were out there struggling every day to make life better for their families. Those are the people that I wanted to deal with. So my answer to your question is people. I think people are amazing. People can do anything they set their minds to. And I think that if they understand that, be a servant, be a servant leader, help other individuals get better in this world. And I promise you, you will have an amazing life. That's such a, a lovely sentiment. And I, I have to say that like it's, I, I knew that it would be, but it's been such a through line in all of my conversations that I've had as of late. Um, everyone seems to be on the same page in that respect. And I think that's what, gives me hope is the fact that I believe that too. I think that, you know, people are inherently good and people do want the best for each other. Every person I talk to that confirms that it, it just, it, it brightens my day. I want to thank you, Terry, so much just for this conversation and for sharing your light with the world. Please tell folks listening how they can connect with you. Yeah, I have a blog called Motivational Check. I put up a thought for a thought for the day every day on there, recommendations for books to read videos to watch. You can look at my social media links on there as well. And you can leave me a message and that's all at motivationalcheck.com. All right. I want to thank my guests today for sharing their insight with us. And I'm incredibly grateful to you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this conversation. I hope it left you better and smarter. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a future guest or a particular topic you'd like me to cover, you can email me directly hello at thinkoutsidethelines.com. Now may you go out into the world today and leave things better than you found them. For more information, please visit thinkoutsidethelines.com.